Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm Andy Wilson, along with co-host Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? I'm good. And also Hugh Syme. How are we going? Uh, how are you doing today, Hugh? We're going well, thank you. Doing well, too. <laughs> All the above. Today we are joined by Fee Waybill, the lead singer and songwriter of San Francisco band The Tubes. Waybill has also worked with many other artists over the years, including Toto, Richard Marks, Brian Adams, Billy Sherwood, among others. Has also appeared in several motion pictures and TV shows as well. The Tubes were formed in 1972 in San Francisco from two bands that moved there from Phoenix and still consist of its original members to this day. World-class drummer Prairie Prince, virtuoso guitarist Roger Steen, bassist Rick Gator Anderson, and led by singer and our guest today, Fee Waybill. Known for his classic characters, including the glam-rocking, stack-heeled Quaalude, the dangerous Mr. Hate, or the gnarly punk parody Johnny Booger. The Tubes released many albums over the years. We're going to delve into the music, the artwork, and everything else. And in 2020, he released his latest solo album, E Way Bill Rides Again, which was produced by Richard Marks. And The Tubes have been performing their seminal album, Completion Backwards Principle in its entirety on tour recently. And uh, so please welcome to the Music Buzz, Fee Waybill. Thank you. We're so glad you're here. Great to have you, Fee. My pleasure. I re-familiarized myself with the uh, Completion Backward Principle record yesterday, and I had forgotten that at the beginning there's the announcement that says, hey, basically, listen to this whole thing, you know, like the old days, like we used to do. Yeah. And I've got to say that the album stands up 40 years later is certainly a classic, and 
The production, of course, is fantastic. Prairie's just slamming some drums. Shredding guitars, great immaculate vocals. You guys hit it out of the park with that. And gosh, are you coming to Indiana doing the show? I'd sure love to hear that. Is that where you are, Indiana? Yes. Well, I mean, eventually, I hope. Yeah. Someday. We had started doing it in... uh, in uh, 2019 and done, mm. you know, middle of the year, the, the summer tour. And we had done it quite a few times. And, uh, you know, all of the dates so far that we've done this year are places that we never did it before. Oh. So, you know, normally we would change the show every year and we, we wouldn't come back to some place we played with the same show. Sure. Sure. We have done that for years and years and years. And, uh, but like you said, this is such a great album and the music stands up so well. And uh, the songs are just, I mean, they're so great. And uh, and the band is great. And so we just, we just kind of broke our own rule and said, okay, now let's just keep doing it for a while. This is, this is working well. Let's keep doing it. And uh, uh, it's funny because it, the, uh, the voice at the beginning of the album is a guy named Stanley Patterson. And this whole concept of imagination creates reality, which is the completion backward principle. This was a sales technique from the fifties. And we (laughs) found this album in an old used record store by Stanley Patterson. And it was an album that he went around playing for sales forces and, and this was back when when salesmen were still going door to door. It was based on door to door sales, where the guy would selling you know encyclopedias or sure. vacuum cleaners or whatever. And the whole idea was to get your salesman to visualize the completed sale before you ever walked up to the door, and hmm. just imagine that completed sale before you knocked on the door. And that would sell you so many more vacuum cleaners. And we thought it was great. And and we've kind of uh, plagiarized, I guess, Stanley Patterson for uh, for 40 years. <laughs> so, incorporated. Yeah. Incorporated. There you yeah. go. That's a better word. And so we're we're doing, you know, we're we're uh, we're still wearing our gray flannel suits, and you Great. know, it's funny that you know we thought back in in 1981 we thought, oh, the music business is becoming so corporate. And <laughs> Look at it now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's only what three record companies left, and right. yeah. Uh, but you know, that's why we were kind of you know major major uh, parody sarcasm and parody are forte at its finest yes yeah well plus i just want to hear prairie play think about me because that's one of the fastest songs of all time i want to go okay man how you doing i bet you warmed up before that i bet he's got the drum pad going a little bit before he has to hit that bad boy (laughs) that's a smoker man yeah i mean that's that's brisk we'll call that brisk well and you can you're a drummer so you can appreciate him and he's, very much so yeah, he's a great player I, he's incredible he's a, a brilliant drummer yeah i saw him with uh with um, jefferson starship in 2005 when they came uh-huh. through here i uh-huh. didn't know he was going to be there but see so he played for them and he played with country joe mcdonald too it was just like a san francisco thing but no he sounded great he's he's always great so yeah he's 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 the best so yeah come to indiana please 
Okay. <laughs> we'd love okay. to we'd love to see y'all. So I mentioned in the intro, but take us back, if you will, a little bit to the move from Phoenix to San Francisco. I mean, I think when obviously a lot of people think of the San Francisco scene, obviously they think of the Grateful Dead and whatever, but uh-huh. you know, there's it's just like a melting pot over the years of so many amazing bands and whatnot. But you know, just take us through that scene, if you will. What happened was Prairie, once again, Prairie uh, spawned that whole move because he is a brilliant artist as well as a brilliant drummer. And he got a scholarship to the San Francisco Art Institute. And at the time, Prairie was in Roger and Prairie and a guy named David Killingsworth had a little trio in Phoenix uh, called the Red, White and Blues Band. And they had been playing around town and I knew them and uh, Prairie got this scholarship and he said, you know, what are you going to do? I have to do this. I have to do this. And that was that began in the fall of 1969. At the time, I was working on a cattle ranch in northern in northern Arizona, being a cowboy. And uh, one of the guys on the ranch uh, and I knew I had known them before I moved up there. I kind of dropped out of school at ASU and and uh, moved up to the, a ghost town up in northern Arizona. So they needed a band for a wedding. They were going to have a cowboy wedding out on the ranch, on the Perkins Ranch. I worked for a guy named Dave Perkins. And I said, I, well, I know these guys in Phoenix. Maybe I can get them to come up and play at the, at the wedding. And so I got a hold of Roger and he said, oh, okay, sure. And, you know, they probably paid him a hundred bucks or something back then. And they came up and played for the wedding. And while they were there, they said, hey, and this was like the summer of 69. And they said, you know, we're moving to San Francisco and we need help. You think you could uh, drive the truck to San Francisco? And so I said, yeah, I was kind of being getting tired of being a cowboy at that point. And uh eating mountain oysters if you know, <laughs> oh yeah Ooh. Ooh. yeah <laughs> i was a vegetarian anyway no you gotta eat the mountain oysters man we're, you're, we're gonna kick your ass if you don't wow i oh. so anyway i said okay so <laughs> I, I drove the truck to san francisco they had an old uh they had a milk truck it was a divco milk truck with the sliding door you know with the milk when they delivered milk those were the days and so i drove it up there and they started uh playing gigs around san francisco as its little trio eventually the bass player uh they ended up firing the bass player because he couldn't make it to practice and practice was in the basement of our little house and he lived in the basement and he still couldn't make it <laughs> well, yeah, he's out. <laughs> Pretty much smoked hash all day long, mm. and uh, couldn't crawl across the room, huh? Just yeah. Right. <laughs> and so they, so uh, Bill Spooner uh, had a quartet, and he was also friends of ours, and he lived in Arizona, in Arizona, and and his band was in Arizona, and and we, you know, every chance we got, we told people this, you know, San Francisco is, I mean, Arizona is pretty red, if you know what I mean. It was pretty conservative. San Francisco, I mean, is probably the most liberal city in the whole, you know, world. I don't know. But anyway, it blew our country, at least. At least in our country, right. 
And uh, so we kept saying, oh man, this is the place. And so Bill decided to move his band there. Then the bands ended up merging together. Roger and Prairie couldn't find a bass player they liked. And while we were, while we were, they were looking for one, I started singing his parts because I knew all the songs and, and they did, they didn't do cover songs. They did original material. And so I started singing and uh, the two managers, Bill's, Bill's manager and Roger's manager, they just said, let's merge the bands together and have one big Arizona super group. <laughs> and mm. so we did. So we all, we all got together into one big band and, uh, and I started as the background singer and, uh, but I sang too loud. They kept getting mad at me because I was, I didn't blend very well. So they finally said, okay, well, you can be lead singer then, you know, it's, <laughs> you're pain in the ass and uh, way to go yeah <laughs> that's right and so you know that those those for first few years in san francisco i mean it was a complete mind blow i mean complete Polk street castro the castro district the you know uh it was it was unbelievable and and all the bands you know like the starship and the grateful dead and uh, I mean, we, you know, we used to see Timothy Leary talk before a Grateful Dead concert at this, there was a, a club on the beach called the Family Dog. Yep, heard of that. And he used to talk every weekend, the dead would play there and Timothy Leary would, would speak. And, <laughs> oh, I mean, it was just, it, it completely blew our mind. I'll bet. Coming from the ranch in, in, uh, in Arizona, I'll bet. There was a group called the Cockettes, and it was all, it was this huge group of transvestites, and they would all dress up in these elaborate costumes, and they would, they were not very good musicians, but they would, you know, uh, they had a lot of tracks, and, and, you know, that they would play to, and uh, there was another band called the Cycle Sluts. And it was the same thing. It was like a motorcycle bondage band of, of yeah. oh, I mean, <laughs> great name. <laughs> oh man. And yeah. we saw all these bands and, and we, you know, we took, we, we let it influence us. You know, we started doing sure. visuals and we started doing, we, we ran into a troupe of girl dancers. Uh, Jane Dornacker led this group. They were called Leela and the snakes. And it was Jane and three girls who were strippers from Broadway in San Francisco. And they did, they had like a little comedy troupe and she was brilliant and wrote all these just classic little skits. And, uh, and we saw them at a little club on Polk street and we, and we hired them. We said, okay, you want to be in our band? You know, come on down where, we're, we need, we need, uh, and two of them were singers. So they would sing background vocals and we would do dance routines. And, you know, we used to do, we used, I used to do a Tom Jones bit with the girls <laughs> dancing Tom Jones oh, and, great. Topless, and they were topless. <laughs> and of course, it, San Francisco was pretty much the only place we could get away with topless. What a shame. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> it just blew our mind completely. It just, it formed us. It, it, it made us what we, we became. You know? it, now at that point, what year would that have been when they you joined forces with them? Well, that had to be, 
Gosh, it was before we got a deal. So maybe 73, 74. Okay. Okay. We got our first record deal in 1970, late 74. Uh, We sent a videotape. We had been sending out these cassette tapes to everybody. We never even got a reply. So we video we we videotaped a show, you know, with all the characters and the dancing girls and everything, and we sent it out. And the A and R guy at A and M Records, his name was Kip Cohen, just blew his mind, and he said, "I'm coming up." And so he came up from L.A. to see us, and that we ended up signing our first deal with A and M. Awesome. Were you guys um, at, at that point, because you were extraordinarily hooky and you have remarkable vocals, were you guys pulling that off live at that point to where the label saw that as well as the visuals? Were you pretty tight on the vocal front at that point? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't believe the tapes alone didn't cause that reaction because, I mean, you, you are one of the most hooky bands ever and your vocal prowess, you know, you you and bands like Foreigner and Toto and so on all just had that yeah. down to the yeah. yeah. Well, these guys had a little more street in them too. I mean, like White Punk. No, I know. Dope. That was pretty uh, trailblazing. Which record was that on? White Punk's on Dope. Oh, that was on the first record. That's what I thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember hearing that, and thinking, "What? What is this?" Yeah, very cool. Well, as an album cover designer myself, I mean, it's not lost on me. I I recall very very clearly and fondly the the white pvc t right for the, the blue cover and of course the original gelatinous you know squirt of red on, on the tubes who was the driving force for the graphics was it prairie or was well it was both prairie and mike they had an they had an art business together and uh, uh it was prairie and mike and they did they did it they designed every cover we ever did right they did all the logos that that red uh tubes logo was yeah. Mike's idea and that was toothpaste yep that was that was squirted out of a toothpaste tube and then the uh the pvc t on completion backward principle that i mean that was i mean that was you know like water pipe that was sprinkler pipe <laughs> brilliant yeah they, they did it all they did and they used to they used to do uh the photography as well, uh, at least you know, direct the photography. It was always and and still Prairie still does it all. I mean, all the T-shirts that we have and every T-shirt that we design comes out of Prairie's brain. Yeah, awesome. There's a lovely level of what I like to call improbable reality, especially on the uh, remote control cover. Mm. I look at that and it just feels like something from from my studio. I just I can relate to that one. Yeah, that was our manager's baby, Leighton. His name was Leighton Farr, sitting in the baby chair with the big nipple on the on the. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody loves a big nipple, don't they? <laughs> and the, and the backside was actually we went to Hollywood. The backside was actually. The set of Hollywood Squares. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. Go in there uh, for like 10 minutes and take pictures. That's That's awesome. Well, my question is, when you guys were first starting, how many people were in that band total? That was a lot of mouths to feed for a rock band. Well, I mean, we had, to begin with, it was a seven-man band. 
And then we had restyles as a featured vocalist. So that's eight. And then right. we had the four dancing girls. Jeez. Uh, that was 12. And then uh, every, pretty much every guy, you know, the first tour we went out on, we probably had, I don't know, 25 people in total. And the crew was all part of the show. I mean, the road manager, Chopper, he played the strong man in uh white punks on dope and uh nice. and the you know the uh we had we took out two costume girls sharon and gail Lowe, and they they were like the playboy bunnies nah. white punks on dope and so everybody on the tour had a part in the show yeah. at one point or another that's fabulous that's a lot of mouths to feed so the characters and obviously you're you're known for so many of those great characters were those all yours like all the concepts behind all those a, a few of the, the quaalude character was definitely my concept okay from the beginning yeah and but but a lot of the others you know we you know like the 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 parody of of johnny rotten mm -hmm. uh johnny bugger right. was i mean it was <laughs> we let all of these all of these genres glam rock and punk rock and it, it all just kind of we kind of just soaked it all up and uh and and did our own kind of parody of it or satire of it whatever the case may be and uh but we were i mean we were the seven of us from the, the beginning i mean we were we were a bunch of hippies you know there was no i, I was not i was not the you know the leader calling all the shots mm -hmm. Sure. Right. Everything we did was as a group. Team, team effort. Yeah, gotcha. It was definitely a team That's effort. That's cool. Yes. Now, now on the live side, you know, obviously coming out of, out of San Francisco, but I know you guys, you guys played, you guys have like played with so many different acts over the years and, and you guys work well with so many different, but some of the, some of the ones I was looking at, like Alice Cooper, obviously also from Arizona, um, mm -hmm. Led Zeppelin, you guys play with Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah. Wow. Yes, we did. Yeah. I got to ask, I mean, what was, what was that experience like? <laughs> well, I'll, sh I'll tell you, Led Zeppelin was, was, uh, there was a guy named Herbie Herbert. Yeah. He managed uh, journey. He, he went on to manage journey mm -hmm. and Herbie wanted to be our manager. And he said, I, if you let me be the manager, I can get you a gig. And we went, okay. And you know, we we're taking any kind of gig. He can say, I got you a gig opening for Led Zeppelin and we, you know, 1972 right. uh, wow. at a football. It was Keysar stadium was uh, where the 49ers used to play, but it had been abandoned because they built them a new stadium, Candlestick Park. And so this stadium was just old and beat up and the field was all overgrown. And that's where they put on, the Led Zeppelin show and they built a big stage at the end and it was a daytime show. Mm -hmm. And so they let the people in the night before to camp on the field before, because the show started at 1030 in the morning and there was wow. three bands. It was us and Lee Michaels and Led Zeppelin. And we went on at 1030 in the morning and I did the whole show Gosh, I, I can't imagine the tubes for breakfast. I mean, that's, yeah, I that's know, man. <laughs> they, they hated us. They never had heard of us. They, 
and I was doing Quaalude, you know, and and I had a big bag of white sugar pills, and and I told everybody this was Quaaludes, and I want everybody to share my Quaaludes, and I was throwing these pills out into the audience, and the people, <laughs> as soon as they looked at it, they just threw it back at it. Oh. <laughs> They booed us. They they didn't want to hear anything about us, and they they were screaming Led Zeppelin at us the entire show. And the police were there. The police believed me, and the police thought I was throwing quaaludes to the audience. <laughs> oh, and they wanted to bust me and shut the whole thing right. down. And Bill Graham, who was promoting the show, and Bill loved us. Uh, he was he was such a great guy, and he you know he said. Guys, hold it! They're they're it's candy, right. okay? I'm not throwing hundreds of quaaludes out. <laughs> yeah, right? That's <laughs> oh, so great. So they went, oh, okay, and then so we didn't get busted. And that was the show. I I I, I still don't know the the why of it, but uh, apparently the Led Zeppelin had got into a big fight, and they were like punching each other out in the in the. The, the dressing rooms were like RVs or little trailers. And apparently there was some kind of big freak out and I don't know what, but they made us, they said, uh, when, Le when Led Zeppelin takes the stage, you have to stay in your trailer. Okay. Don't, don't look at them. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> you have to stay in your trailer <laughs> until they walk by and go to, and I was, okay. Cause apparently everybody was uptight about something. But they were amazing. I mean, it was incredible. And uh, uh, but I mean, they went on at like two o'clock in the afternoon or something. Wow. I mean, that's wild. Well, was that was, before like the whole day on the green thing and all that kind of stuff? Because that. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was like the that was one of the earliest day on the greens. Most of the day on the greens were at a different stadium, not at right. Keys Yeah. They were at uh, Oakland Co Oakland I was Coliseum. Say, yeah, I thought Oakland. Yeah. Hmm. Across the bay, yeah. How long did those go on? The day of the green thing. Did those go? How, were they around for ten years, or how, how long did those go on? Oh wow! You remember? Probably, gosh, at least ten years. I mean, we played there in '83. With uh, we we were on tour with Bowie, and uh, wow, we did a whole uh, we did a whole North American tour with Bowie, and the last show was Day on the Green, uh, 1983. What album was that? That's Serious Moonlight Tour, probably, wasn't it? Yes, Serious Moonlight. Okay. Yeah. And that was the year we had a big hit with She's a Beauty. Oh, yeah. Great song. The opening act was Peter Gabriel. Really? Wow. Oh, man. Wow. What a show. What a show that would have been. Right. And it, it was all, he was so big, and every show was a stadium. Every show was 60, 70,000 people every night. Yeah, it was amazing. It was really I need amazing. to look that up. I'd love to see like the set list from you guys and from everybody from that tour. What a tour. Jeez. He was uh, so generous. I mean, he, he knew of us and he liked our band and he knew we wanted to do, a, you know, a th he still, you know, where he gave us more time. He gave us like an hour or something and he moved all of his gear back so that we could set up our little set wow. and do our regular kind of you know, show. Really? It was great. He was. That's very he was, cool. He was really amazing. Wow. So on, on that front, with the characters and everything, and obviously the theatric stuff, who were you most? Who were you guys like most influenced by? Because 
you're hard pressed to find too many other, you know, other than Zappa, maybe Captain Beefheart or something like that. I mean, it's hard to find something like you guys. We were both, we were big fans of both of those. I saw Zappa many times, saw Captain Beefheart many times. Uh, we actually asked Don to come and play on, he played on our, our third album. And uh, oh, yeah, okay. he, nice. he brought his horn and he played on Kathy's Clone and on the Now album. And also we covered one of his songs on that album. My head is my only heart unless it rains. Yeah, that guy was brilliant. And uh, we played with Frank Zappa too. It's, that's a good story. We played, uh, there was, uh, we, were, we were really big in, and still are in England, in the UK. And uh, our manager, we, we, uh, our first manager was a, a guy who managed, what was the band? Uh, One Took Over the Line. What, what was that band? Brewer, Brewer and Brewer Shipley. And Shipley. Our manager managed Brewer and Shipley and they fired him. <laughs> and then he came to, and he was a cab driver in San Francisco. And he came to us and said, I'll manage you guys. You know, I used to manage Brewer and Shipley. Oh, okay. So he became our manager. And, uh, uh, and then, we, you know, we weren't really thrilled with him and we ended up firing him also. And we went to this Welshman named Ricky Farr and Ricky Farr was the son of the heavyweight champion of Europe, Tommy Farr, who ended up at one point fighting Joe Lewis for the world wow. heavyweight champ. And this guy, Ricky was built like a brick shit house. I mean, he was huge. He was a rugby player. And so he was tough as nails. And he, when he first took us, took over uh, the management of the tubes, he's, I think it was 77, something like that, 77. He said, have you guys been to the UK? And we went, no. And he said, oh, well, that's the next, I got to take you to the UK. You're going to be great in the UK. And so he did. And we, uh, did a lot of shows there and we were pretty big there. And in 79, uh, we were on the bill of a show, uh, Nebworth Fest, the Nebworth Festival. Oh, yeah. In 1979. And the headliner for Nebworth that year was Frank Zappa. And it was Frank Zappa and the Tubes. And there was, I mean, Boomtown Rats and just a whole bunch of bands all day long. What year was that? 79. 79. And uh, and we had a big show planned and we were, you know, we had built a ramp on the stage because we wanted to do Don't Touch Me There, which we normally would do on a motorcycle. But we rented a car. And we were going to do it in a car, a little Ford Cortina. And so we built this ramp and we're going to run the car up onto the stage and do the song. And actually, what happened was I was on the stage. This was before cordless mics. And so I'm on the stage with a mic, with a cord, and they drive the car up onto the stage and the, 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 the choreography, we had Kenny Ortega as our choreographer and the guy is a genius. Uh, the choreography was, and it was a convertible car. And so he's right before the song starts, you're supposed to jump into the seat next to Ree, who was in the driver's seat. And, uh, when they pulled the car up onto the stage, they the back wheel stopped right on the cord. 
on my mic cord. Oh, great. <laughs> and I, and I'm supposed to like jump into the, and I had like, I'm holding the mic like here. And that was it. That was all this, the length I had. <laughs> and I panicked and I, right before I was the, the cue. And, and I still don't know how I did it. I reached down and I picked up the back wheel. I picked up the back of the car. I grabbed the fender and picked up the back wheel of the car, the right back wheel, and I kicked the mic cord out from under it while I was holding it. I mean, the thing probably didn't weigh 500 pounds, you know, but uh, still, still, yeah. anyway, I was so adrenaline, know, adrenaline, exactly. And I made, but what happened was before we start, you know, as Zappa sees seeing us putting all this theatrics together, he came to the manager and he went, look, I don't want to follow these guys. Okay. <laughs> really? He wow. said, you can go on last. I'll go on second to last. Really? Is that okay with you? So that was like a game time wow. day of decision. Day of wow. decision. Yeah. I'm not following. They no, not a chance. Wow. And so, wow. I mean, I, I, I mean, Zappa was brilliant. I mean, I, you know, no I, don't, I don't, I don't, I still don't understand it, but <laughs> We said okay, and so he went on second to last, and then we went on. We closed the show with the with our big production, but we but we and, and Alice we played with you know a million times over the years, and he's uh, he's a friend. I've I've gone back to do his golf tournament quite a few times over the years. And he still lives in Phoenix, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and I've, we've gone there to play. He does a Christmas show every year for the charity that he sponsors. And so we go back and play the Christmas show. He's got a podcast now also. Who oh, does he? Alice is great, man. He's Alice is he fabulous. and uh, Toby, yeah. who works with him, um, just great, man. They still do, you know, interviews, promote their shows. They're pros, man. And Shep has been his manager for years and years. And Shep's a great guy. Yep. And we just we last time we went to Europe, last time we went to the UK was opening for Alice in big, you know, we played Wembley Arena and all these big, you know, 25,000 seat arenas in the UK, which was a great time. We had such a great time. And he is so generous and always sound check and always, I mean, giving us enough room. I mean, it's just, you know, there's there's no no more generous person in rock and roll than alice he's a great guy well that'd be a great show you guys and alice cooper too the mm -hmm. same night be like whoa yeah yeah it is a great show it's a no question show. tell us about the uh the the solo record that you you know came out in 2020 i know you worked with uh, richard marks on uh fee waybill rides again hey what's behind the title uh and tell us about the record i wanted it to be a cowboy record uh Richard and I have, you know, we 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 started working on this. He's such a generous guy. I mean, and we're pretty much best friends. Richard doesn't have any siblings. And so all these years, I've been kind of his big brother. He calls me Fee Man, and I call him Ricky Boy. Okay. And so he's younger than I am, and he never lets me forget it. <laughs> and uh, years ago, he's got three sons, Brandon, Lucas, and Jesse. And I'm the godfather to his three sons. Okay. And I used to, when the boys were little, uh, and Richard used to live in Chicago. He lives out here in California now. But uh, when the boys were young, every summer, we would do a boys trip 
I would fly back to Chicago and he had a big house in Chicago and I had my own bedroom. You know, I was there what, what a week, a year, maybe. And uh, but we would do a boys trip every year and we would we would, you know, do something. A lot of times uh, his his dad had a cabin in northern Wisconsin at a, in a town called Minocqua. And he had a little cabin on a lake. And so we would drive up to Minocqua and, and hang for like a week at the cabin with the boys. And uh, we did this year after year after year. And then sometimes when the boys got a little bit older, we did, you know, more exciting things. Like we would fly to Wyoming and go whitewater rafting or something or horseback riding or something. So anyway, in the summer of 2013, I flew, it was, it was, we were going to do the boys trip. We hadn't decided what we were going to do yet, but something, some kind of a boys trip. And I flew back to Chicago and, uh, and the boys said, and we said, okay, boys, what do you want to do this summer? And they kind of went, we want to hang out with our girlfriends and go to the movies. <laughs> <And so, laughs> what? It, well, Uncle Fee, they call me Uncle Fee. Uncle Fee came all the way out here to, you know, yeah, well, that's tough shit. <laughs> <laughs> we want to see some chicks. Right. I went, okay. Oh, well. Okay, well. <laughs> And so Richard said, well, okay, well, he, he had a studio at his house that he had built, a recording studio. And he said, let's go to the studio and write some songs. And uh, okay, so we did. And we wrote four songs then, uh, Faker, How Dare You, Promised Land, and Woulda, Coulda, Shoulda. We, we started four songs that are on the album. And then, you know, it was what before we the next time we got together i mean the next summer we're not i didn't go back because the boys are not interested and it so it went maybe two or three years before we did another song and then we did one here and then a couple of years passed and we did another one there and then so finally in in uh, the summer of 2019 richard was living out here and he says well i'm here now let's do it let's finish it let's finish the record and, you know, go in the studio, do the overdubs, do vocals, do whatever we need to do. But let's just finish it. It's been too long. And so we did. And we finished it in uh, the end of uh, 2019. And, you know, we're ready. We got it mastered and mi mixed and mastered by a, a guy named Matt Prock, who's from Chicago. And the guy's, you know, Richard's guy who he had used before. And the guy's really, really good. With the writing process, I'm always curious to know what comes first. There are so many musicians that write music and they love the groove and they love the arrangement. Then they get around to the melody. And then, of course, there's the dreaded lyrics or, or the task of writing good lyrics. How, how does it work for you? What's your process? I write poetry and I have I've, I've got one my, my right now, my one and only poetry book that that I've published and uh i'm about finished with the second one but i i sometimes it, it, it happens different ways it's not like uh elton and uh bernie yeah yeah bernie toppin yeah. bernie bernie writes the lyrics first and then he yeah. gives it to elton and elton and that that's i think he's the only guy that does it that way everybody yeah. i've ever written with writes the music first and yeah. that's what we, I mean, Richard will write a track 
or, 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 or a melody or, you know, mm -hmm. and send it to me and text it to me or, or email it to me. And then I, you know, sometimes it has a melody. Sometimes it doesn't have a melody. Sometimes right. it has a title. He goes like, you know, maybe this could be the title and, you know, like the last line of the chorus or something. And then I play it a billion times until I figure out what it is. Is it happy? Is it sad? Is it social commentary? Is it about a girlfriend that you just met? Is it about a girlfriend you just dumped? I mean, what is it? In those instances, you write the words once you discover your melody after those million times of listening. You write words in the wake of listening to the music. Yeah. When you write poetry, are you mindful of how those words will sing or do you stay freer in your form? I, no, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not mindful of how the words will sing. I see. Okay. I just let it flow. So, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, like sometimes when I write lyrics, I'll, I'll, you know, he'll have a, he'll have a suggestion for a, uh, a title or a line in the chorus. So I'll start with the chorus because I have, a, you know, a title line that yeah. somehow fits in the chorus and then go backwards from there, then go back to the first verse and figure out how is, how are the verses and the B sections going to lead up to the chorus, culminate in the chorus. And then sometimes he doesn't have a, 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 t a suggested title. And I start with the first line of the song and I just kind of, you know, let it write itself pretty much. It writes mm -hmm. itself. I just, Get out of the way and let the muse go to work. That plays well to your opening comments about the salesman, um, about working working backwards after you, you you get the good title or the good hook, the line. Yeah, yeah. And like the song, uh, uh, Don't Want to Pull the Trigger, the third song on the record. I don't know if you listen to the record or not, but the third song on the record is a song that, he had that title. He 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 sent me the 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 little demo on text, and he had he said you know the title is don't want to pull the trigger, and uh, actually it was my wife Elizabeth who, you know she hears the text and it starts out with he, where he says fee you know I can't really play the the lead lead guitar line. But it kind of, and it, so he's he's just singing into his phone oh, yeah. with an mm -hmm. acoustic guitar, and he's he's. But it goes kind of like this, and and he's talking it and and playing it, and then he goes in, and it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, whatever. And, yeah. Uh, and then she goes, oh, "Why don't you? Why don't you, that's so cute?" <laughs> and I just went, "Yeah, well, that's." pretty much the way we work most of the time. She goes, why don't you take that little piece with him talking to you and doing the first and make that the beginning of the song and yeah. then go into the oh, actual cool. recorded portion of the song. I said, well, no, I said, no, you, you, we can't do that. You can't do, you can't turn that text into a, you know, pro tools. She went, I bet you could. I bet you, I bet you could, if you ask Matt, because Matt had been working on the album all along. Yeah. I said, you ask Matt, I bet you he can do it. And so I went, okay. And I asked Richard, I said, well, what do you think about this idea? And he goes, well, I don't know. I, I don't think you can do it, but let's ask Matt. And, you know, and Matt pulled it off. I'm going to listen to that tonight.
Well, this has been great, man. We so appreciate your time. Do you guys have any other last last questions for him? Uh, yeah. Uh, where does Prairie show his art? What, what, what galleries does he show at? I'm curious. Uh, well, uh, he, he, there's, he, he has shows in San Francisco, mostly all San Francisco. He also does drum sets. He airbrushed drum sets yeah. and, uh, for various people. And he does murals, great big murals on the side of buildings. And, uh, and also he does uh, uh, motorcycles. He, he, he paints motors. The, the oh, really? Prairie's got a little studio in San Francisco, an underground studio where we rehearse. And yeah. connected to the studio is this guy named Pete who is like, a, he's a fireman, but he's also like a machinist and he, re, he builds things. And uh, he, he likes to build these little Honda 50s, you know, from the 60s, little, yeah. little Honda motorcycles. Yeah. And he rips them all apart. And, and then sometimes he'll find, he'll do Italian bikes, but they're all like antique. And he'll make all these parts that, you know, you can't find the parts, so he makes them, you know, he's, wow. uh, he's, wow. he's amazing. And then wow. he'll get this bike put, to, put all together and, and Prairie will come and paint it or, and maybe he'll have a guy that he's re doing it for or, or rebuilt or restoring it for. And then Prairie will come in and go, okay, well, you know, how about if I paint it for you and make it unique? And uh, so he does that. I've got another question, Fee. When, when are the tubes going to put a new record out? Wow. Well, that's, that's a good question. I don't know. Give me another like 10 years maybe to work on it. We, we have a few songs. You know, we have a few songs. We probably have one, two, three, four. I think we have maybe four songs in the can. That's almost a half a record, man. You get six more and you're... Right. That Roger and I have written. And, uh, okay. But it's, you know, everybody's... I'm the only one that lives in L.A. Roger lives in Fremont. Prairie lives in San Francisco. Uh, Rick lives in Modesto, out in Highway 99, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, it's seldom that we actually get together. Some, you know, Roger will send me tracks and 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 we'll work on them. And uh, he and Prairie get together sometimes and goes into a studio in San Francisco and cut some basic tracks and, but it's just, it's difficult. And uh, sure. everybody's got something else going, you know, and Roger's got a solo band and Prairie's got a million things happening and playing with like four different local bands in San Francisco. And I'm pretty busy playing polo actually down here in LA. <laughs> Good for you. Well, thanks for the time. We so appreciate it. It was great. It was fun. And uh, appreciate the best of luck. Well, thank you guys. Andy, Dane, Hugh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Yep, likewise. Great to meet you. Great to talk about all this stuff, man. Fantastic. Thank you. Cool. Cool. All right. With Dr. Prairie. Cheers. All right. Bye. 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 Bye-bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.